Hello and welcome to Cities of Sand, a podcast which unearths the connections between urbanisation and the material at the heart of it, sand. I'm Kate Dawson and I'm your host. Thanks for joining. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you so much for joining. I've engaged with your work quite a lot in both my PhD dissertation as well as later papers. So I'm really excited to speak with you today. Would you be able to tell us a bit about who you are, where you're working and what you're working on? Yeah, sure, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, My name is Jerry Z. I am a cultural anthropologist by training and I work between feminist STS, environmental and political anthropology, materialism and the environmental humanities. I'm currently an assistant professor at Princeton University in the Department of Anthropology. So the High Meadows Environmental Institute, which is an interdisciplinary uh, environmental studies institute where there are a handful of environmental humanities folks and a bunch of environmental engineers and natural scientists who work together to really think and gather around questions of environment sustainability and trying to imagine the conditions of a less ecologically terrifying future. That's probably a nice way of putting it. Um, (laughs) Would you be able to tell us a bit about, you know, your focus on sand? How did you get there? And I'm thinking specifically about your paper, Holding Patterns, which I loved. And I experimented with using this phrase in a paper on urbanization and thinking about particular kinds of like urban temporalities. Mm. I found this notion of holding patterns really interesting. Could you tell us how you got there and how you got to sand? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about how sand happened. It, you know, it's often the case ethnographically, it was a bit of an accident. My first project, or the way that this project was originally formulated, was as a sort of study of desertification and science in northern China. And I was originally sort of interested in how field scientists, field environmental scientists, were sort of processing their own understanding of their environmental work, both in relationship to through the emergence of uh, state environmental attention and initiatives in northern China, and also with their specific commitments to landscape in place. But what I found was that most interesting to me and also those people was, well, the sort of multiple properties and dynamics of sand as a very strange kind of substance that that composed not only the sort of environmental conditions, but offered a way of thinking through the sort of collision of a bunch of processes that are happening in China at the same time. So originally I was involved in some anti-desertification work in Northern China, Mm -hmm. whose main purpose wasn't local, wasn't the resolution of local land degradation and its social and economic fallout per se, but rather as part of this program that was taking place across different points in sandy Northern China, whose main purpose was to build an incipient meteorological infrastructure for Beijing. Um, In the last several decades, Beijing and other places in northern China have not only had a rampant air pollution problem, which is the one that sort of filters to us Mm -hmm. through international media, but a large constituent of that particulate matter problem is a problem of strange new deranged weather patterns, especially in dust storms, which have increased Mm -hmm. in size and intensity uh, in the last several decades. And what is driving these changing weather patterns or the increasing intensity of weather events? So there are multiple sort of explanations and 
sort of scientific and political claims as to what drives the formation of increasing dust weather, as it's known across northern China. And those are sort of, they become important in this article in terms of imagining and sort of implementing technically the forms of sand control that would be necessary to both stabilize landscapes and weather systems. The principal one that's identified as an official cause of desertification, which is to say the the cause that circulates in state forestry and anti-sand circles has to do with overgrazing in pastoral regions where you'll have individual family herding operations. The argument is that different sort of maladjusted market conditions that are introduced in market reform since the 1980s have created the both ecological and economic conditions for the restructuring of sandy landscapes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the way that's often given is that the pressure that markets introduce for herding families to, to grow more and more animals has changed the pattern combined with land reform, which has significantly lowered the size of herds that individual families are able to access has shifted both the seasonal cycles of pastoral animal husbandry. And one effect of that is that grass doesn't grow in quite the same way. And one effect of that is that the landscape becomes destabilized. And that destabilization happens at multiple scales, right? And so one of the things that I was interested in relationship to sand are both its sort of protean properties and how these come to matter, both in terms of articulating a kind of environmental crisis Mm -hmm. uh, across Northern China, and also in sort of imagining how to harness the powers of sand as a mobile material in different ways that I find quite interesting. What's important and interesting about that mobility to me, as well as to folks I was speaking with in Northern China and working with and conducting long-term field with, is that sand effectively operates under certain condition as a material that can slip across faces of matter. So sand can move as a quasi-liquid in the form of dune creep or in terms of saltation. So different kinds of ways that a landscape, a sandy landscape evolves. But importantly, what articulates sand as a long distance meteorological problem is that exposed sands, when combined with strong winds, can become weather events, right? They can become dust storms that gather in distant interior places that are quite remote and become giant weather events that will eventually reach not only Beijing, but places further downwind. Fascinating. I mean, there's so much more to talk about, particularly with the question of time, historical time and deep time, which is captured in part through the quite contested notion of the Anthropocene. However, in the interests of time, could we turn to the city? What do you think we see when we look at the city through sand? What kind of narratives or ways of thinking emerge when we bring the city and sand together in your work? And it'd be great here if you could talk about or talk with some of the narratives coming out of your forthcoming book. Um, One of the things I found really striking, I guess, at the beginning of my fieldwork and all through my fieldwork is that actually there's some very durable tropes of long historical tales of sand as a material, like the relationship between sand and cities is mostly given as a question of disappearance, right? And so especially in the sort of desert regions of China, the image of the buried castle of disappeared history by sand stands as the sort of temporal anti-figure to some of the things that I've been talking about, right? And in fact, in the paper, I tried to think a little bit about how the sort of technical sensibilities through which some of these sand control engineers and scientists 
we're thinking about with the movement of sand, um, those technical sen sensibilities inevitably become a way of narrating the future possible burial of places where people live, right? And so the, the relationship between urbanism and sand in many of these places was given as negative, right? And I hear in the background, while there are questions of, you know, the actual materiality of sand as a building material, and so you, you sort of feel the tension there, right? Between sand is both the condition and the ending of a particular kind of urbanism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the most, I mean, I think the most direct version of this is that, you know, in the first sort of major public worries over dune movement in China starting in the 1990s and 2000s, the figure that was always on the table was the idea of Beijing, which is on the semi-arid plain of Northern China, was a city that was always just on the threshold of being buried. And you have this sort of direct image of the confrontation of centralized state power with landscape, right? With landscape as a, um, with sandscape actually as a, as a sort of mm. a force of disappearance, right? And so there were a series of, so much of what compels sort of early tension towards sand as a political question is also the specter that the administrative center of China and also the sort of site of its most spectacular sort of national iconography would have to be moved, right? You would have to change your capital. And that's how the question was often given. I know we've been talking very prominently about sort of these desert cities, but Beijing figures very prominently in the sand control apparatus that I'm interested in. Why? Because it's directly downwind of many places that are now experiencing intense desertification and therefore it exists as a point in the sort of regional itinerary of dust storms when they form. Right. right. And so when I talk about meteorological engineering, usually what these engineering projects are oriented toward is explicitly the idea of protecting Beijing from the sort of feral capacities of sand and wind as mobile substances, mm -hmm. right? Um, as a mobile interrelation that threatens the political status quo. And so you have these moments in which there's a kind of paranoid environmental security thinking that's oriented towards sand as a substance that could collapse the politicum as such. And so that's a thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite a significant thing, yeah. That's a thing, yeah. So I think that that's where I would start. And you know, a yeah. good amount of the book thinks through particulate matter as one of several sort of embroilments of wind and geology through which different kinds of political experiments are kind of taking shape, right? Not, so it's not just a question of catastrophic air pollution, but the experiments to form in relationship to it yeah. that I'm kind of interested in. And, you know, all of these things sort of collide on a city like Beijing, where you have the confrontation of state power with these permutations of sort of exogenous environmental substances, right? So there's an extreme sense in the context of a dust storm that Beijing is not under bad weather, but experiencing bad weather from somewhere else, right? That has to be dealt with. Um, right. And so, you know, these are some of the sort of questions of urbanism that are at stake. And then I'm also interested a little bit in the sort of architectural formations that take shape around the mediation of the air as a sort of terrestrial density, right? So when you start to think about air, not as an emptiness, but as a gradient of the land that moves, yeah. what kinds of architectural, ad hoc architectural forms and techno embodied ways of inhabiting 
uh, dense airspace take shape. Right? Um, and, you, to give us just one quick example, if you don't mind, what kind of architectural forms are we looking at? So one thing that happens in the context of an event of, well, let's say in a dust storm, is that Beijing very quickly shifts from a city that you can think about in terms of horizontal distance into a city that you have to think about in terms of nested airspaces. Right. And so the profusion of different kinds. I mean, some of this now seems after the pandemic and, you know, the way that across the world people have been learning to manage the contents of air and our relationship to it a little bit sort of, you know, old hat. Right. But one of the things I was interested in was the profusion of different kinds of atmospheric technologies whose main purpose was the idea of, of trying to insulate airspaces against one another. Mm. Right. You have, you have a splintering of a general urban space into a profusion of small urban airspaces, each of which in principle is going to be hermetically sealed from all the others. Right. right? And this sort of dynamic between the hermetic seal and ventilation, I found very exciting in that moment because it was a way of engaging, let's say, with atmospheric sand, right? Which one, and one has to think about. And it compels people to think about their own bodies in airspaces that are neither clean nor empty, uh, neither clean nor polluted, but rather are gradients of a particular kind of density. Yeah, I think that's really powerful and has a lot of conceptual potential. Well, thank you so much for joining today, Jerry. It was really great to speak with you and I'm very much looking forward to the book. Ben, thank you so much for joining today. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you about your research. Would you be able to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your work and where you're based? Yeah, thanks again for the invitation to join you. Um, my name is Ben Mendelson, and I'm an assistant professor of film and digital culture at Portland State University. My background is in media and cultural studies, as well as the environmental humanities. And in what ways specifically do the relationships between sound and cities feature in your work? So the, the two main projects that I've completed thinking about cities and sand are a, a film called As If Sand Were Stone, which uses dredging and sand filling, particularly in relationship to the uh, deepening of New York's harbor as a lens for thinking about the city and the relationship between nature and infrastructure in New York City, as well as my written dissertation project, which was titled Nomadic Ground, Geosocial Relations Along the Global Urban Coast, which begins from a planned city and land reclamation and coastal protection scheme called Echo Atlantic City in Lagos, Nigeria. Great. And what do you think sand has offered you when working with questions of the city? What does it show us about the city that other lenses might not be able to? So I, I think that one of the things I, I look for in a lot of projects is the possibility of turning in as many directions as possible into relationships that trace outwards in all sorts of directions to all sorts of additional discourses you know, in part, this is, it's not an answer to your question of what does sand show us as much as saying it became really clear to me that sand was a way of looking at the city that had an enormous amount of possibility and potential in which we could look towards artists, to the tradition of land art, 
in its encounters in urban contexts. I was really struck by this group, Vic Vanderpool, who has worked in New York a little bit, the public art duo who has some videos and projects about Masflakta to the new Rotterdam land reclamation scheme that built a, I don't know how much new land for that, that port complex. It was a lens into understanding kind of just geomorphology and learning more about coastal science. It was a lens into learning more about real estate and the medium of, of land in relationship to value and speculation, learning about toxicity and contamination and you know chemical relationships, and also you know about uh, just kind of vernacular and public culture. So in the context of New York City, but also in the context of Lagos, there's just always this question of what the what does the waterfront mean? How does the waterfront find itself kind of imaged and imagined in things like folk culture, uh, music videos, you know, cinema, skyline images, you know, the the kind of skyline establishing shots at the beginning of Real Housewives of New York City, you know, and, and how those correlate to common tropes in establishing shots at the beginning of Nollywood movies, which would also, you know, raise questions about the ways that the waterfront is pictured in another highly fabricated city like Mumbai. So... Yeah, I think, you know, the answer to sort of what Sand shows us is giving a a lens that has a lot of potential to pursue a wide variety of analytical lenses. Thank you. I I think that's absolutely what I've taken from your work is this ability of, of Sand to hold many things together at once, even though it's this physically fluid material it comes together in these particular kinds of formations. And I feel like that's what it's able to do for you in in your work. And that's what I've really enjoyed. So that's a really great answer. Thank you. Do you have Um, a different answer to this this question? How do you like to to answer this particular um, question? I I think I've always sort of felt quite similar to you in the way that it it was a landscape. It was a way of seeing and a way of talking about the city. And it offered an entry point into the city and some of that was driven by a post-colonial urbanist imperative to think differently potentially to some of the other theories that that were coming out or did dominate theory and I know we've spoken a little bit about post-colonial urbanism so I felt like it was a potential opportunity to see something different and the work that I've shared that I've published has been taking specific elements of this. So one of the papers was about geologizing urban political ecology. So what would sand tell us about urban political ecology? And another area that I'm working on is what does sand tell us about contemporary livelihoods and how people are fashioning futures for themselves in particular ways. So I feel like it probably resonates a lot with what you said. It just is able to hold many of these things together And at times, you know, you can bring these things together to say something bigger about the city or about cities at large. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's really well well put and and reminds me, I think, of, you know, two of the most salient features of what I feel like I learned by spending time in Lagos looking at different earth-moving, sand mining, and land reclamation projects. And that was, you know, I first arrived because I was looking at all of the different global projects that firms like Royal Haskening or Dredging International, so Dutch and Belgian firms, were active in. You know, the Palm Islands of Dubai, 
you know, all, all these different projects in, in North America and throughout Europe and found Echo Atlantic City in Lagos, spectacular planned city built on the Atlantic coast. And what I sort of quickly found out was while that might have been one of the loudest, most high profile examples of land making in Lagos, it was one case in an enormous landscape of, of earth moving across and land making across scales from informal settlements that mm. are constructed in shallow water using you know mixes of sand and solid waste or burnt solid waste and ash to private developments across the Lucky Peninsula that entail filling in marshland, you know, using large amounts of sand, that this was just a really, really pervasive set of practices that clearly was a kind of significant way for understanding life and livelihood. You know, with regards to questions sort of a value, the economy of sand, um, you know, one of the things that I found most revealing was sites targeted for forceful eviction in Lagos were very often recently constructed, recently filled plots. And it seems like in most, if not all cases, folks aren't given time to... They're not given kind of ample warning to like deconstruct their dwellings and take their belongings with them. They tend to be bulldozed or burned to create additional infill. So there's a kind of labor that is happening there that's being, you know, it's being stolen, basically. Mm by um, speculative property developers who then kind of come in and maybe pave it over and upscale it to some degree. So it is a really potent kind of vector into understanding urban political economy, you know, and something that I hope others continue to, to pursue in their, in their research and thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and the other comment that you made too about post-colonial urbanism just reminds me, I think, uh, infrastructural relationships that express themselves through sand in the context of Lagos mm. revealed a tremendous amount in terms of the sort of continuities and discontinuities that span the colonial and the post-independence eras there. That Because Echo Atlantic City, this 10 square kilometer landform, is essentially just a real estate fundraising scheme to finance the seawall that was necessary because of coastal erosion caused by the British harbor moles built around 1919. One of the reasons that it seems like Lagos was attracted to Europeans in the first place had a great, had a great deal to do with its tidal channel, allowing access to the interior lagoons in a way that's fairly uncommon along the Bight of Benin coast. But that came with a sandbar that supposedly, you know, it was known as the bugbear of the bight. I mean, there's a lot of places you can read about this in the work of Robin Law, and the work of Kristen Mann, as well as uh, urban historian of Lagos, who's focused a great deal on maritime history, Ayodeji Ulukoju. So it fascinated me that, I mean, it it seems super important that so much of what was shaping this high-profile mega development that no one in, in Lagos could escape kind of noticing and thinking about was shaped or pressured into being to such a high degree by the coastal engineering decisions for port access that were made by the British towards the beginning of the the 20th century. And the kind of erosive response of the coastal drift system emerges in response to the jetties kind of interrupting the flow of sand along the waterfront was sort of 
trigger number one for why something like Echo Atlantic was even dreamed into being. You know, and for that reason, it seemed like a really important kind of physical and material example of these colonial remainders expressed through infrastructure, as well as a way through the sort of visual and semiotic or expressive representational realm to kind of think that tangle of visual and representational questions also very much pressured by colonial remainders in dialogue with the sort of, you know, infrastructural landscape ones. So in thinking about a post-colonial urbanism then, Sand really reveals this important history of colonial and indeed ongoing sets of violence and dispossession in cities, whether that be Lagos or somewhere else. So in that way, it's a material undeniably bound up with urban political economies, beyond just thinking about sand as a material out of which concrete cities emerge. So there's so much more I'd like to be able to talk through, but we'll have to end things here. So thank you so much for joining them. So Joanna, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have you here and learn about your research and the way in which you're working with SAND. Um, would you be able to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work? Hi, Kate. It's a pleasure to be here and to do this interview and to have the opportunity to talk about my work. My name is Joanna Gaspar-Bekleitas. I am the PI of a project called Dunes T and people, an environmental historian. So the purpose of this project is to write uh, environmental history of dunes worldwide, so different cases in different countries. I mean, this sounds really intriguing. Where, where did the inspiration for this come from? Well, it is strange for a historian to work about dunes, I know. Uh, people are always reminding me of that. Many years ago, uh, in 2002, I got a grant to work in a project with scientists. They were interested in having historic information about coastal areas in Portugal. So I spent two years looking for information about uh, beaches and uh, erosion storms in newspapers and after that I was amazed with the possibilities of studying the history of coastal areas and that is how I found not the sand at the first time but the dunes and the beach. So how did the research evolve from here? Well that research was the base my first interest in working about coastal areas dunes and sand And then I start developing my own ideas and looking for other areas and thinking about how to write history about these places. Because like I said, I was working with scientists. Their interests were a bit different from mine. And it's not usual for historians to work about uh, the beach or the sand or the dunes. So this is interesting for me because it's always a challenge to work on history, but at the same time have to deal with scientific data. Absolutely. I can imagine these feel like quite different ways of seeing the world, but have quite important overlaps as well and critical exchanges. So could you share what the focus of this work has been? 
basically I discovered, and my interest about the sand has to do with that, is that in coastal dynamic, sand is fundamental. If you have a lot of sand, you will have beaches and dunes. And when there is no sand, you have coastal erosion. And so basically I'm doing the history of beach dune systems and how sand is crucial for this uh, functioning and how this connects to people as well. Because as an historian, I'm always interested in people and how they live and how they feel what is their relation with this uh, environment. An environmental history of dune seems really intriguing. So what kind of histories have been revealed through the dune? Well, that is quite curious because in the past, the dunes were a menace. They were a danger to people. In fact, that is how I found the dunes. I was looking in newspapers from the 19th century for storms and overwashes. It's when the sea floods the land and causes damages. And then I found out in these newspapers that people then were more concerned about the sands than the sea. And I was curious, why were they so afraid of the sands? Because there were big dunes, really big dunes. And these dunes were moving. They were, the sand was blown by the wind and it was moving inland. And in some cases, it was covering farms, agriculture fields, and even some villages. And then I found out this is not just something that happened in the 19th century, but it could go back in the past, along over the centuries, until remote times, into the Middle Age, for instance. And this was not only a problem in Portugal, but in many other countries of Europe. Dunes were seen as a threat. They were dangerous. So people did not like the dunes. They were considered to be hostile, deserts, places where nothing grow, uh, masses of sand, useless. And when did this shift, do you think? What does your historical analysis reveal about a shift in perception or behaviour of the dunes? It was basically in the middle of the 20th century. It was not only the dunes, but the, the coast itself. Until the 19th century, uh, the coast was a void by most people. It was, it was not a pleasant place. It was a place used by tailors or by fishermen. It was a working place, not a pleasure place or a recreational, a leisure place. That only happened later. It only happened in the 19th century. In the case of the UK, a little bit earlier, in the end of the 18th century, when it was the doctors discover or realize that sea bathing was a therapy for some diseases, or at least they believe it was. So when sea bathing became a therapy for the elite, the ideas about the beach started to change. And that is the beginning of our enthusiasm and the way we see the beach today. So in the 20th century, more people start going to the beach to enjoy that place. And in the 20th century is not for the therapy, for healing the diseases, but it's already for the leisure 
to enjoy the place. So the beach became a leisure place, a place where people wanted to go for their vacations where, or, or when they had some free time. So that is important because with the beach came the dunes and all that environment. But in the 20th century, it was all, also the time when science realized how coastal systems work. And they realized that the dunes are fundamental for this system to be resilient because the dunes are the warehouses of sand. They provide sand to the beach when it's needed, for instance, to recover after a storm. But they also became, when there, there, are, there is a lot of sand, it's kept on the dunes for uh, rainy days. So there's a, a system working in here of sharing sand between the beach and the dunes, which is quite important. And when the scientists realized this and other things about coastal environments and how the systems are linked, well, dunes became valuable. They also realized that dunes have several ecosystem services. They provide us goods and services like sequestering carbon. They are uh, important ecosystems and habitats for plants and animals. They are responsible for filtering water and pollutants. So nowadays, we know that dunes are quite relevant. So to bring us back to today, how do we see the coastal dune, do you think? Today, the dunes, for instance, are considered to be the best natural barrier against flooding. Because dunes are a natural barrier during storms. And so worldwide, they are being protected and restored to work as natural barriers. So management change from fighting the dunes and trying to stabilize the sand to keep them because they are valuable ecosystems and they provide us important uh, goods and services. Fascinating. And can we bring this into close conversation with the city and urbanization? Dunes are a resilient system, yes, but they need two things for the system to work. And those two things are land and space. And well, you know that sand is disappearing. Sand is being trapped, uh, is, is trapped by dams that we built to have electricity and, and we have sand mining. Sand is taken from the natural systems, from rivers and beaches to build our cities. And in the other hand, you have the problem of space. We built those cities. We built our seaside resorts on the dunes or just behind the dunes. So they don't have much space to retreat because as the sea level rises, the beaches move inland. That's their natural way of surviving. But how can the dunes move? How can they retreat in land if they will find our roads, our houses, our infrastructure? So this is also a problem. We have less sand. We have no space to maintain the dunes. 
There are really important relationships then between sand, the dunes, coast and cities, in that the processes of urbanisation mean that more sand is being extracted from natural systems to build concrete, in turn creating a situation where less sand reaches the beach. And yet we also have coastal urbanisation, which we know is a growing trend, housing the city's most elite and most vulnerable at the same time, although under very different regimes of protection. So this coastal urbanisation in turn reduces the space needed for dune systems to flourish and perform those natural barrier services, in turn generating huge vulnerabilities for coastal cities. So it seems to be so much there. To turn back to history then, it feels incredibly important. I wondered if you could elaborate on why you think it matters to take a kind of historical perspective of the dunes and coastal management. What do you think a historical perspective offers the much broader and growing space of research on sand and urbanisation? Well, I think we know a lot about sand in the present. And we know and we are discussing what is going to be the future of the sand and also about dunes. Most historical, most scientific research about coastal areas is centered in the present and in the future. But if we don't understand how we get to this point, if we don't understand the past, I think something is lacking. We have short memories. We only know the present and we are focused on the present and the future. Mm. And sometimes we, we want to keep what we have. We have this idea that this is what we have now and we have to do everything to keep things like this. But this, the present, is only a part of a bigger story to adapt. And that is what history shows us. To adapt, we have to change. History shows us that ideas, values, people, uh, beaches, sands, all of this is fluid. All of this is always changing. And it was different before. It was different in the past. And so to preserve these ecosystems, we have to let them flow. One of the problems is that we don't let the sands, the beach, the dunes to flow. We try to stabilize them as we want them to be. But history shows us that in the past, there was something different. In the past, all of these ecosystems and people, they were moving. And that is important because in some cases, the, in the future, we may have to adopt some of the strategies of the past. It is interesting because Nowadays, many of the projects to restore the dunes are using fences and planting vegetation. And this was exactly the strategy that was used in the 18th and 19th century to stabilize the sand, to keep the dunes from moving. They were using fences and planting vegetation which is kind, kind of interesting. We are always looking for new knowledge, yeah. but it, there is so much knowledge in the past that we can adapt to our present conditions. And that part is important because the other thing that we used to do is we didn't live on the shore. We didn't live on the coast. We used to live inland. 
near the coast, but not exactly on the beach like we do today, because our ancestors, they knew it was a dangerous place. It was always changing. It was, there were storms. There, it was a place where agriculture was difficult. They, they were living inland and they went to the beach only for fishing or for navigation or for traveling. And well, nowadays scientists are saying that one of the solutions in the future may be connected to this, to retreat from the beach, to retreat inland to more safe areas and let nature follow its course on the coast. Hmm. Yeah, I think this will really resonate with many listening, thinking here about the politics of knowledge production, whose knowledge matters and whose knowledge becomes marginalised. The notion of retreat or management of retreat has huge implications for thinking about equity and justice on the urban coast, with many of the world's poorest urban inhabitants residing on coastlines vulnerable to climate change, sea level rise, coastal erosion. What will retreat mean in this context? I think the question or challenge might be how history can become an integral part of shaping futures that better account for both ecological restoration and social justice at once. Well, thank you so much, Joanna, for this fascinating conversation. 